0: That's stamps.com. Code program. Wars are
1: expensive, especially if you're a new country and haven't quite worked out your financial system yet. During the Revolutionary War, America was often close to broke. That is until Robert Morris, a wealthy Philadelphia merchant, stepped in appointed the new superintendent of finance, he used his contacts and personal wealth to borrow money, source munitions, and pay the troops. But once the war was won, there were suspicions Morris had profited from his position. Could he have used the secret deals he made to supply the army to enrich himself at the same time? In 1790, he became the subject of the first ever congressional investigation. There was not enough evidence to prove his guilt. Now, Republicans in Congress are using those same powers to investigate the president's son. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today... Will the Hunter Biden saga spell trouble for Joe Biden? A tragic death of a beloved brother, a descent into addiction and vice, and a mysterious laptop seized upon by political enemies as evidence of corruption. House Republicans hope that by delving into Hunter Biden's murkier business dealings, they'll find a trail of wrongdoing leading back to the president. Is this just the usual partisan mudslinging? Or is there more to Hunter's laptop than that? With me to try and explain the convoluted Hunter Biden laptop story are Charlotte Howard, who's sitting opposite me in London, and Idris Calhoun, today coming to us from New Haven rather than his usual perch in D.C. Charlotte, how are you doing? How are you finding London?
2: It's great to be in London. I've had a very busy week here with various meetings, but my husband Dan is holding down the fort with three kids at home, so anything I'm doing here is relaxing in comparison. How are you, Idris?
0: I'm well. I'm in New Haven, the greatest city in the world, uh, where it was barely above freezing and raining yesterday. It was also the setting of a horror movie, if you can imagine it. Um, So yeah, having a lot of fun here. (laughs) Um, Idris, I almost feel
1: like I need to get on a plane and come and rescue you. Are you going to get out of there okay? Or do we need to stage some kind of intervention? I'm only here for 28 more hours. (laughs) Well, it'll be twenty seven and a half once we've finished, so just stick with us. Yeah. Okay. This week, we thought that we would take a look at the Hunter Biden laptop story. It's something we've covered in The Economist before. But as the House uh, Republicans get their oversight committee going, you're going to be hearing a lot more about it. And we thought that a really good place to start would be with Andrew Rice, who wrote a fantastic piece for New York Magazine, along with his colleague, Olivia Nuzzi. This is a pretty convoluted tale of an Apple laptop that Hunter Biden dropped off at a repair shop, computer repair shop in Delaware, and then apparently forgot to collect. And through a series of rather bizarre events, this hard drive with an enormous amount of very personal material on it and lots of emails ends up in the hands of some prominent Donald Trump supporters. So I began by asking Andrew what Hunter Biden's life was like around the time when he dropped off the infamous laptop.
3: It was quite a tumultuous time period. His brother had died in 2015 after being diagnosed with a fatal brain tumor. Hunter, at that time, went into a a spiral. His marriage disintegrated. He started a relationship with his brother's widow, uh, which obviously caused a lot of turmoil within his family. and, And this helped to exacerbate an existing addiction issue that he had doing a lot of drugs, smoking crack cocaine uh, in hotel rooms up and down the eastern seaboard, visiting with, with prostitutes, just in general, kind of going through a, a complete personal meltdown that only ended by his account when he uh, met a woman who became his, his wife, who kind of helped him to get back sober and, and on a more constructive path.
1: And on the laptop, there are details, you know, images of those drug and alcohol binges. I think we call them benders in British English. But then there's also a whole load of details about Hunter Biden's, you know, business dealings, lobbying activity. And that's where you could make a case that there's some real public interest in the contents of the laptop, right? And where Republicans think that they have got something on him that might eventually lead to the president. Could you tell us a bit more about what might be incriminating for Hunter Biden on that score.
3: Yes. I mean, I think that the relevant that you're making here is that that laptop contained his entire digital life, right? So it wasn't just his personal failings. There are also tons and tons of materials there that that detailed the inner workings of his various different attempts to make business. In Washington, he was at this time, had been a high-powered attorney, had been a, a lobbyist, was somebody who is, I think it's fair to say, leveraging the Biden family name to advance his business interests. There are a lot of details on the laptop that suggests that in addition to making some irresponsible personal life decisions, who's making some irresponsible or at least risky professional decisions, getting into business with Ukrainian oligarchs and many other kinds of business deals that, that don't look all that great when placed under the bright light of scrutiny of presidential level politics.
1: And do you think Republicans have a genuine case here? I mean clearly there's a degree of political opportunism right if Joe Biden were your political opponent you'd suggest that there was something inappropriate here even if there maybe wasn't but do you think there's actual substance to the the charges that are being leveled at at the Biden family
3: as always with these sorts of questions you have to divide the sort of reasonable questions that have been raised not just by republicans but but by Journalistic institutions like the New York Times about, you know, what was Hunter Biden doing with his business in places like Ukraine and China, and the question of whether there are actual crimes that are described or or, or implicated by the material on the laptop, you know, as is often the case with these situations. I mean, sometimes what's most scandalous about the situation is what's legal. Hunter was using you know, his family name to make millions of dollars in consulting fees during this time period. It, it seems to me from all the reporting that's been done that the federal prosecutors who are investigating Hunter Biden seem to be focusing on a rather narrow potential set of charges involving his taxes, whether he properly reported this income. There's not really necessarily a, a law against using your family name and your connections to profit and to do business with people who want proximity to power and influential individuals in the United States. There's a, a long and not so august tradition of it. So Hunter was really participating in that. And it seems that if he did break the law, he broke some rather technical ones having to do with you know, reporting his income. Did he do things that look bad from the perspective of his political enemies? Yeah, I mean, he he obviously was involved in some financial relationships that don't look great.
1: Andrew, have you ever spoken to Hunter Biden or, or people close to him? Was there much of a reaction from him to your piece?
3: You know, we had conversations with a lot of different parties in what I can describe as the Hunter Biden camp. There are a number of people in the story quoted on an anonymous basis that uh, describe his state of mind and his position vis-a-vis these investigations his view is that basically that he's been singled out for you know a degree of scrutiny of his personal and professional behavior that is perhaps unprecedented in the history of American politics the fact that the laptop is out there and the fact that all of his data has been exposed to the world exposed him to a level of scrutiny that is perhaps unprecedented in the history of American politics. I think that his camp would say that it's pretty astonishing that with that level of transparency into what Hunter Biden's life was like in these incredibly dark and tumultuous moment that the most prosecutors have been able to come up with are some potential problems with his taxes and And the most that Republicans can come up with is some business relationships that look really bad and and some explicit photos that no one would probably want to see out in the public domain. Well, that that says something to to Hunter Biden's camp. I mean, what that says is that, that all of this is much ado about nothing and it's political gamesmanship.
1: I think that's the question for this episode, isn't it? Whether this all is all Much Ado About Nothing and political gamesmanship. Do you want to have a go at explaining the various allegations against Hunter Biden that are contained in the famous laptop?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a long list. So I think you can divide it into the personally salacious, um, the drug addiction, the lavish spending, the compromising photos and these sorts of things that maybe you know, people would have a prurient interest in, but don't really amount to that much, um, politically speaking. And then there's the more contentious stuff, the, the thing that actually gives Republicans a reason to investigate Hunter Biden, and that is his business dealings with people in Ukraine. You know, he was on the board of a company called Burisma, from which he made millions of dollars which allegedly was being investigated for bribery. Um, he had business dealings also with Chinese businessmen. And the potential problem here is not so much that he traded off of his last name. I think you know we, we can conclude that for a long time, uh, Hunter Biden's profession has been being Joe Biden's son. But the re- question Republicans want to answer is whether or not President Biden or perhaps when Vice President Biden uh, materially altered foreign policy to benefit his son. If you talk to Republicans on the Hill, they will sometimes, you know, they, they've poured through uh, the emails on his laptop, and, and they cite a reference, a cryptic reference in one of those emails to the big guy who gets half. And there's a theory that they have that the big guy is Joe Biden, and there's some sort of uh, arrangement going on here. That's a thin basis to, to launch investigations, but that at least gives them some point of entry as opposed to just plumbing the depths of Hunter Biden's misdeeds and misdoings, I think, which if they spent a lot of time on would certainly embarrass him, but would feel not terribly relevant.
1: Okay, thanks, Idriss. That was comprehensive. Charlotte, this is partly a media story, isn't it? I mean, when news of this laptop first broke, the mainstream press didn't pay a huge amount of attention to it because lots of people were worried that it might be fake, and they didn't want to fall for some kind of Russian information op. Um, Since then, it's turned out that it's not, in fact, fake, although the contents of it are a bit hard to verify because it's been copied and recopied, etc. And also, since then, the mainstream press has done quite a lot of reporting on this. But because some of the big social media companies and big news organizations in America initially kind of ignored the story or prevented it from being widely shared... On the right, the story is that this is the usual cover-up, you know, the liberal media covering up for Joe Biden and and the Democrats.
2: Yes, that is how it unfolded. I think that there are many ways in which the right unfairly criticizes the mainstream press and that the vast majority of those critiques are frivolous. This is one where there is some merit to it. I mean, it just is the case that there was this enormous story that people didn't pay that much attention to it, uh, that media outlets made the decision not to give it that much credence. And I do think that that was a mistake and undermines their broader credibility within voters who are inclined to be skeptical of mainstream media generally. I don't think it's A death blow to their credibility, though. I mean, I don't think that it justifies all the other claims that Republicans make about distorted coverage of American politics. So I I definitely don't think that that's the case. I'm more interested, though, in how the story resonates with voters or not. I mean, we've always talked about how this is a, a subject that half the country really cares about and other people don't pay that much attention to. I mean, it's complicated, it's depressing it's unseemly. It's the kind of scandal that if you like watching Breaking Bad, this is the one for you. And I think that for many Democrats, they just haven't wanted to really engage with it as a news story, and that is increasingly difficult. It's something that is worthy of attention.
0: I do also think that in hindsight, obviously, this looks like a mistake from the media's part, but if you imagine you know, the provenance of the story was a few weeks before the election. uh, This had come to Rudy Giuliani and Rudy Giuliani said, hey, I have a laptop to, to show you. And I think so many reporters felt that they had overstated the importance of the Hillary Clinton emails in 2016, that they were so eager not to be burned again, that they basically resisted it. And I think it, Twitter's action in sort of basically limiting the spread, censoring almost the, the spread of the New York Post article, which was one of the first ones about it, was in hindsight actually quite a bad move, I, I think, above and beyond um, journalists and mainstream institutions not choosing to, to write about it. A lot of this reminds me of the plot of a film noir movie, um, where like in the big sleep, the center of it is this sort of compromise that drives all the action and a bunch of things ensue. But ultimately, you know, the content doesn't actually matter. You know, the sort of prurient details of it are certainly damaging, but it's, it's all of the fuss that it creates that is really the plot of the movie. And I, I, I kind of feel like we have a similar situation here. You know, I think that the links between Hunter's actions and Biden's decisions as president, which are really the only thing that a Congressional Committee ought to be concerning itself with, you know, those contentions are the slipperiest and most tenuous. And yet, you know, we're still going to go through the motions, you know, every Republican on the Hill, because they're not going to be able to pass legislation is going to be chomping at the bit to get on this investigative committee. And I think it's just going to be a lot of sound and fury and not much to show for it.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a classic instance of demonstrating that politics is as much theater as it is substance right it's going to be a pretty dramatic show
1: the big sleep is one of my favorite movies it's famously confusing i watch it with my dad once a year and we're still unsure what happened i feel like the hunter biden laptop story might be the same so Idris, as you say, there's an accusation here that American foreign policy was somehow distorted to benefit Hunter Biden's bank account. That seems like a real stretch to me. However, it is undoubtedly true, as all of us know who've spent time in Washington, that there are a lot of people in D.C. who are in the business of making money off proximity to power or even just the appearance of proximity to power. And you know, such are the import of government decisions that it's possible to make quite a lot of money by going around, particularly outside the U.S. actually, and just seeming to be somebody who has clout in D.C. And as Andrew said, that's not actually illegal, but it does look pretty gross when it's aired in public and that's what's about to happen on the House Oversight Committee. Okay, we'll leave that there for now and go back to a time when a president's brother caused trouble in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, please do subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. A subscription will allow you to read all of our excellent journalism, both online and in the weekly. Idris, Charlotte, what has particularly stood out to you this week?
2: I will plug the piece by Alice Fulwood of Money Talks fame, because Idris may be embarrassed or not to plug the, a piece written by his wife. But she has a great cover story on Goldman Sachs and the way that its reign over Wall Street is threatened. And I find the cover to be hysterical. I'll let you all look it up online, but it's really good.
0: Charlie McCann wrote a really great profile for 1843, our sister magazine, of two Russian asylum seekers who crossed the Bering Strait and made it to Alaska in order to avoid the draft. Um, It's really, really uh, movingly written. I know there's been a lot of interest in it. I mean, it's just such a great story.
1: Yeah, I second that. It's a great piece. And I can see Charlotte nodding too. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. The convention stage was filled with people. The Clinton family, Bill, Hillary and Chelsea, were front and centre to celebrate Bill's nomination as the Democratic candidate for president in 1992. But it was another Clinton who took to the mic.
2: Please welcome
3: Roger Clinton.
1: Roger Clinton was Bill's musically inclined younger half-brother,
3: My brother took over the leadership role in our family when he was just a kid. In old pictures, it seems like he always had his arm around me.
1: Ten years Bill's junior, raised by an alcoholic dad, Roger saw the future president as a father figure.
3: When I was first starting school at the age of five or six, he went down to the courthouse and had his last name changed to the same as mine. You know, I have to smile.
1: He'd always been a bit of a lost soul. In his youth, he'd dropped out of college to try and make it as a rock star, but hadn't got further than singing in small clubs around Arkansas.
3: My name's Roger Clinton, the name of the band Politics. We are from uh, the left coast.
1: Then, Roger's performance at the Democratic Convention and his very famous brother led to a record deal.
4: But my brother's the president. He just got through calling me before I came out here. In
1: 1993, he was part of the Farm Aid Benefit concert.
4: I've been sleeping, babe.
1: Hips gyrating, hair in a shaggy mullet, performing mediocre rhythm and blues. As Roger Clinton sang his way through the mid-90s, it was all a little embarrassing.
4: His presidential relatives are in a bit of a bind. You know, it's very hard for them. James Bennett is The Economist's Lexington columnist. And often I think they build up a little bit of a sense of grievance against their you know, famous, fabulously successful politician relative, they they often feel that their career has been stunted and held back and that they're placed under a public microscope and embarrassed. And I think that contributes sometimes to a a real sense that they've been treated unfairly. Whatever the reasons,
1: Roger Clinton kept getting in trouble. It wasn't just his dad dancing that led the Secret Service to give him the codename Headache. In 1985, he'd gone to jail for dealing cocaine. That's some breaking news here. Rondondo Beach, California now, just into us. Apparently last night, Roger Clinton, the brother of... There were a few DUIs.
4: Driving under the influence around 8 o'clock.
1: Including one in 2016, while Hillary Clinton was running for president.
4: Apparently he's still in custody, according to this report. Bond said at $15,000 will be in court today. As he is yet
1: to... And there were other attempts to cash in on the family name. He allegedly tried to secure the release from jail of a mob boss in return for a gold watch, although this was never proved. But the greatest transgression in the Roger Clinton saga was not his own.
4: Bill Clinton issued on his way out the door a number of really questionable pardons.
1: One of them was for Roger's 1985 cocaine conviction. James Bennett again.
4: That was a politically damaging thing for Bill Clinton to do. I Would imagine he felt it was a personally necessary thing to do and something he was doing to try to help his little brother. And who knows to what degree Bill Clinton felt somehow a little bit responsible, not necessarily for the trouble he got in, but Rogers' difficulty making his way in the world. We can only really guess at that. But it's reasonable to say that he used the power of the presidency directly to benefit. A member of his own family, and that is a pretty, you know, unappealing act.
1: It's natural for someone to want to help a loved one, but the powers and privileges of the president shouldn't be abused, however much trouble a brother or a son gets themselves into. Charlotte, you might think, given that we focused on Roger Clinton and Hunter Biden so far, that troublesome presidential relatives are a new thing, but they are not.
2: So not so fantastic was Jimmy Carter's brother, who, among other things, was registered as a paid agent of the Libyan government and was paid $220,000 for doing so. But more interesting in my mind was young Alice Roosevelt. So Eleanor Roosevelt is thought of as a model, but Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, I feel like, should quickly rise in the ranks of famous female Roosevelts because she was very controversial, but her crimes included smoking in public and showing up at parties with a pet snake, which I just think would be a fantastic interview technique. And when she was told by her dad, Teddy Roosevelt, that she couldn't smoke in the White House, she called a news conference on the roof and smoked there. I am just in awe of young Alice Roosevelt.
1: I think someone needs to put her on a postage stamp in the U.S. Idris, have you got any particular favored troubled relatives...
2: Oh, wait, I should interject that I think that Don Jr.'s hairstyle and sartorial choices in and of themselves rank him among the most embarrassing presidential relatives.
0: I didn't know who Roger Clinton was until roughly 20 minutes ago. As we were listening to the package, I did YouTube a bit of that Farm Aid concert, which um, looked really special. And uh, I'm really sad that I I missed a lot of the 90s.
2: About as special as your time in New Haven at the moment.
0: This is another traveler's checks moment for Idris.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that whether one views presidential relatives as smarmy or tragic depends entirely on whether you agree with the politics of the president in question. So if you are inclined to detest Donald Trump, you look at the actions of his children as revolting displays of nepotism. If you are in favor of Donald Trump, you might see them as industrious and entrepreneurial. Same with Hunter Biden. If you really detest Biden, you think that he is part of a broader corrupt democratic establishment, then of course Hunter Biden is just a a sleazeball who's feeding that corruption. And if you favor Biden, you might be more inclined to take a sympathetic view. I will say that even if you like Biden, his son Hunter engaged in some pretty smarmy activities, even if he were acquitted of all the questions in which he might face legal charges. It's hard to view him too charitably. Nevertheless, I do think The assessment is in the politics of the beholder to completely bungle and warp a phrase.
1: I think you're right about that. I do, however, feel a lot of sympathy for Joe Biden here and feel sorry for him, right? There's a voice memo that James Bennett quoted in his Lexington about Hunter Biden recently where Joe Biden calls his son up and leaves a message saying, I don't know what to do. I know you don't either, but I'm here no matter what you need. No matter what you need, I love you. And that to his son, who's struggling with addiction to crack cocaine and has lost his brother to cancer and all the rest of it and is making a total mess of his life, I, anyway, found moving. And James's hunch is that voters... He wrote, have private heartaches of their own, and they seem to feel presidents are entitled to them too. So I guess we're about to get a test of that thesis. We'll be back in a moment to hear from one of the Republicans who's investigating Hunter Biden.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite
1: Anna Paulina Luna is a freshman representative from Florida and she's been appointed to sit on the Oversight and Reform Committee, which will lead investigations into Hunter Biden, the wider Biden family and some other Republican bête noirs. We spoke on Wednesday and I wanted to know what she thinks Hunter Biden has done that warrants investigation.
5: So we will be conducting that investigation. And I think it's important to note that Hunter Biden and some of the content on that laptop. Um. It's very widely speculated that he's obviously working with the Chinese government. When you have a family that has been given access to some of the biggest secrets that our nation has, also to very powerful positions, you have to ensure to not just the American people, but the fact that we have uh, maintain an edge with. Ah uh, the United States in competing with China for basically a world superpower, that that position's not compromised in any way, shape or form. And what we're finding is, especially with some of these classified documents that were actually being kept at Joe Biden's home, is that Hunter Biden was actually there as apparently a resident of that home while these documents that had national security information on them, Um, that he potentially was able to and had access to these documents. And so I think if the Biden administration, if the Biden family has nothing to hide, then they should be cooperating with this investigation. But the fact that they're not, the fact that they worked with third parties like Twitter to censor this information about this laptop, before an election should tell you something, regardless of party affiliation, you have to have faith in your elected officials that they're not compromised. And that's really what we're hoping to do. This is not partisan, but to be quite honest with you, I had a very colorful upbringing. I had family members that struggled with substance abuse. My own father was addicted to methamphetamine. I mean, he was in and out of jail. And I can tell you that my family, if they did some of the stuff that Hunter Biden did, would be in jail right now. And the fact that he's not shows a double standard and that this I would have lost my security clearance if I had those classified documents in my possession as a member of the military. So why is there a double standard that exists in this country? It shouldn't be happening. We hope to get to the bottom of it.
1: That's a really interesting way to look at it because I maybe I'm too soft, but when I read about Hunter Biden and his brother dying of cancer and the struggles with drug addiction and alcohol addiction and and frankly, the kind of mess he made of his life. One of the things I feel is a degree of pity or, or, or sympathy. Is there part of you that feels that? I mean, does that go alongside this desire to investigate?
5: Because of how I grew up and because of what I was exposed to, I understand what people will go through. However, at a certain point, you have to hold those same people accountable if you know that they're indeed jeopardizing and potentially jeopardizing the entire country. I find it very alarming that there are so many ties with the CCP and this family. And as someone who fully understands the human rights abuses that China's engaged in on a regular basis, I fully understand what they are doing to our environment. I fully understand that by 2027, they will be militarily dwarfing us. And by 2030, they hope to become a world superpower. I think that it's wrong that American companies are helping to engineer the social credit system and monitoring system that they have in China. And I think that even people in the UK will understand that if it comes to having two forms of lifestyle, would you rather be in this? CCP or the United States, I think you choose the United States any day of the
1: week, right? You mentioned the documents that Joe Biden seems to have filed away in various places. Obviously, Donald Trump had some difficulties with classified documents. There's a story about Mike Pence at the moment. Do you think that there's a kind of systemic problem here that may have to do with either too many documents being classified or just not having a good process in place? Or do you think this is a question more of you know, going after individual politicians, because I I've, i mean, my bias on that one is that because this seems to be a problem that afflicts a lot of people, there's a kind of systemic thing here.
5: I think it's multifaceted. So you have two separate or I guess now three separate instances, uh, Mike Pence and Trump, for example, Trump was fully cooperating and working with the National Archives. Also, to the main differences between Trump and Pence and then what happened with Biden is that Trump was a president. Biden at the time of holding these documents was not a president. Also, to the argument from Trump was that some of these documents were declassified before he left office. And so these are two very separate document classifications, also to Biden had intelligence documents, which are a huge no-no. Trump's were different. So when you look at really how the DOJ and the FBI handled both of these situations, you had a raid on Mar-a-Lago where then the DOJ leaked information with photos from some of that raid of which Trump's personal documents were also taken that had nothing to do with the investigation, for example, his passports. And then you had Biden who had these documents years in advance, there was no raid, I mean, it's apples and oranges. And so I think that, you know, in in, uh, hearing Chairman Comer earlier today talking about it, I mean, we just want to get to the bottom of it. We want to understand fully what happened. Obviously, I do think that we need to work on which documents should be classified and which ones shouldn't, because I do feel like there's a certain overclassification. However, what I'm mainly concerned uh, with is, has our intelligence operations been jeopardized? Was there the sale, and that's exactly why the Hunter Biden laptop is so key in this, of a official position to a foreign entity to benefit that family, right? Are you selling the official position in office, which is a huge ethics violation? And then also, too, at the end of the day, why is there this double standard that exists within the justice system? The American people don't have faith in that process, and that's wrong.
1: So Idris, let's try and break that apart a little bit. There are a whole load of allegations there that Congresswoman Luna um, is making on the China-Biden nexus. I mean, what we can say is that in 2013, Hunter Biden flew to China on Air Force Two with his dad. So we're going back a decade here. And very shortly afterwards, got involved with a Chinese private equity firm. And so you can join the dots and say, this looks like... A version of influence peddling, right? But it's a long way from that to the Biden family somehow being complicit in the construction of a surveillance state in China. Congresswoman Luna also had a lot to say about documents and classified documents and the idea that there's a double standard being applied here and that Donald Trump was treated differently to Joe Biden.
0: Well, I think he was treated differently because he had lawyers give signed statements to the Department of Justice saying that all classified documents have been removed. When they had not, as far as I know, President Biden and uh, Vice President Pence have been genuinely cooperative with the Department of Justice, the FBI, with uh, you know the National Archives. I think that there is tremendous hesitancy before you know anyone w- sends uh, a team of agents to the residence of a former Vice President or President, and the, you know these things would rather be dealt with. In a more discreet manner, so I, I I don't think that you know the Department of Justice was really after Trump in the way that that she seems to think. I also, I mean, I, I think it's it's a nakedly partisan enterprise. I, I don't think we should have very many illusions about that. If it's just investigations into influence peddling, you know, you can imagine the committee also looking at you know President Trump's children, who were uh, unlike Hunter Biden, actually in the White House and had you know business dealings going on with people that uh, America was conducting sensitive foreign policy negotiations with. Of course, we're not going to have any examination of that in the next two years. You know, And we all know the reason for that.
2: The other thing she said is that the Biden family worked with third parties to try to censor the laptop story. We don't know that that's true. But listening to her, I was really struck by the way that a talented young politician who speaks with conviction can make a case and whether everything that politician says are is fact-bound or not, in many instances, just doesn't matter because of the context in which the politician is delivering the statement. So you can imagine a stump speech in which a lot of things that she says are true. You know, I do think they're, it's fair to point out, and I think it resonates with a normal person, that it feels like there's a double standard at play here to some extent. And then there are things that aren't true and suggestions that infer complicity by President Biden where none exists. So it was very interesting to me to hear both the substance of her interview and the style in which she gave it and be reminded of the way in which storytelling can be used to create two very different narratives within different parts of the country.
1: She's a really interesting politician. Before talking about the investigations on the Oversight Committee, I was asking her about how she got into politics and why she got into politics. And she is, as I said, she's pretty young. She is Hispanic. She got very interested in the border and was particularly worried about people trafficking. And because she was focused on that issue, she told me she had a lot of people basically telling her that she wasn't a real Hispanic. You know, how could you be worried about the border and think there was a problem there? and be a proper Hispanic in America. And it seems, in her telling anyway, you know that drove her to the other end of the political spectrum where she's been ever since. And I think it's going to be an increasingly prominent spokesman for sort of MAGA republicanism in the House.
2: Speaking of charismatic and forceful Republicans, it's worth thinking about the other investigations that are underway. There are a lot of them, right? So it's not just Hunter Biden that is captivating the attention of certain Republicans who are good on TV. You have investigative subcommittees thinking about Afghanistan, about the IRS, about the Mexican border. And the people that the Republican Party has appointed to these committees include real stars who are uh, dramatists. They know how to make good TV. So you have Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Lauren Boebert of Colorado, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. These are all election deniers And they are going to have the attention of many news cameras as they continue to probe questions that they say are of grave concern to their constituents.
0: You know, at the same time that the theater is going on, there are, you know, real investigations going on into Hunter Biden over the large amount of taxes that he owed for a while um, that he's paid off now, and also an investigation into a statement he made on a gun purchase where he said that he had not had any addiction issues. Um, while the committees investigate and generate a lot of publicity about Hunter Biden, you know the very real quiet work of investigators will be going on, and it may result in more serious issue for Hunter Biden than than even the committees themselves.
1: So one closing question, maybe to both of you guys, do we know enough yet to know whether this is likely to implicate Joe Biden in any way? I think from everything I've heard so far, I'm not convinced. What about you?
2: Yeah, I'm not either. I think, you know, there are kind of a few questions about the relevance of, of this is there's a media frenzy and whether it's damaging politically, there's the congressional investigations and whether that affects the basic business of government then there's the actual legal question with hunter biden and whether he is convicted of anything and then lastly the, the effect on joe biden i think the last is probably the weakest it doesn't seem like there's going to be much there there but Adrice, what do you think
0: even if there is something that we don't know yet, I think it's very hard to imagine this ending in a successful impeachment attempt. You know, the Senate is still democratically controlled and this isn't going to end in, in Joe Biden sort of leaving office because of, of the scandal, I, I can say with some confidence. Um, there might be some politically damaging things that we find along the course of it, but I don't see it ending, um, you know, in, in catastrophic fashion.
1: And we should say that when previously asked about the Department of Justice's investigation, a lawyer for Hunter Biden said, quote, As is proper and legally required, we believe the prosecutors in this case are diligently and thoroughly weighing not just evidence provided by agents, but also all the other witnesses in this case, including witnesses for the defence. And when Hunter Biden himself was asked about the DOJ investigation in 2020, he said, quote, He was confident that a professional and objective view of these matters will demonstrate that I handled my affairs legally and appropriately. The White House was also asked about the Republicans' investigation into Hunter Biden and a spokesperson for the White House Counsel's Office said that Republicans are, quote, wasting time and resources on political revenge. Talking of wasting time and resources, I have a quiz for you guys before you go. Earlier, I mentioned that Roger Clinton's Secret Service codename was Headache. So here's a quick fire quiz where I'm going to give you more code names for presidents or their family members. And I want you to tell me to whom they refer. Question one. Rover, a first lady who made frequent trips abroad. Could be Hillary.
2: Yeah, that sounds right.
1: It was Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh. She was Rover. The other Roosevelt yeah. lady. Yes. Not the, what was the daughter who was smoking Alice. on the roof? Alice.
2: Alice Roosevelt. Alice,
1: our new hero. Yeah. Question two. This president was called Providence in office and then scorecard after it because of his love of golf.
2: I mean, there's so many presidents who loved golf. I feel it like this could be, be any of them. It almost
1: condition of running for the presidency, <laughs> like, right?
2: I don't know why I want to say Truman. That's very strange, but that's just what came to mind out of all the golfing presidents.
0: Idris? Providence sounds like a Republican, so maybe Eisenhower? It was Eisenhower.
2: That is really good, Idris.
0: (laughs) That was
1: good. That was good. Thanks. Uh, Question three. This is a presidential couple for you. Mogul and Muse.
2: That sounds like uh, Ronald Reagan and Nancy.
0: That's a good guess. Uh, I'm going to say Kennedy and Jackie.
1: In this case, you're both wrong. Mogul and Muse were the Trumps. Oh, God. Donald and Melania.
0: (laughs) Oh, of course. Okay,
1: question four, Lancer after Sir Lancelot. Maybe that's Kennedy.
2: Um, I guess Kennedy, but...
1: Kennedy is the right answer. It was JFK. Question five, the final one, you'll be pleased to hear. Angler, who was a vice president who liked fishing.
2: Again, this feels like it could apply to so many. Was it Al Gore? Al Gore seems like a fisherman to me.
0: Uh, I could see it being quail.
2: Yeah, quail was my second answer. It's probably quail.
1: It was Dick Cheney, who's mostly famous for shooting things, but apparently liked catching them with a rod as well. Interesting. I guess, you know, Wyoming, there's lots of fishing there.
2: Idris, what would be your presidential code name?
1: Can I volunteer one for you? (laughs) Sure. I think it would be Coach.
0: That's good. (laughs) Yeah, no, it would be Coach. Uh,
1: I found out at Idris' wedding in his best man speech that his nickname at college was Coach.
2: To me, you seem more like Professor than Coach. If I was giving you a nickname, it would be Professor. That would be my code name for you.
0: Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. Coach K works, you know.
1: Well, thank you, Coach. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks very much. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now explore our archive at economist.com slash checkspod. You can also get in touch with us via email. My particular favourite email from this week was a listener called Eric, who sent us a picture from Vermont, where he has the artwork for the presidential seal on President Taft's limo above his desk. So if you have any presidential memorabilia like that kicking around anywhere near you at home or at your workplace, please do send that in as well. The address is podcasts at Thanks also to Laurie for an email this week asking us to do an episode on vice presidents. We've put that one on our planning list. Do get in touch with your ideas because it helps us a lot. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.